Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. For leisure reading, as you might know, I switch out from horror to other genres as a bit of a palate cleanser. I've just got through two books. The first is Kazuo Ishiguro's The Remains of the Day. I can't speak highly enough of this book. It's curious and engaging. The protagonist is frustratingly professional. There have been some stories that have come our way that are masterfully written and others that read as if the author has access to a well-used thesaurus. The difference between the two is very subtle, but Ishiguru's The Remains of the Day demonstrates a subtle but carefully calculated mastery of English. His accolades for this book are well-deserved. The other non-horror book is Neil deGrasse Tyson's Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. I'm a big fan of space stuff. I spend a good amount of my daydreaming time contemplating the cosmos. Tyson's book is obviously not a horror novel, but there is one single thing in his book that I found unsettling. Before I get into that one thing, he does a solid but not perfect job of breaking down some of the fascinating things in our universe for the scientific laity, like myself. The very unsettling thing is this. You may have heard that our universe is expanding. For some time, scientists had thought that our pocket of the universe was the middle because everything was moving away from us. But then someone said, no, actually the universe is expanding, so everything is moving away from everything. And furthermore, the pace at which the universe is expanding is accelerating. And although nothing can travel faster than the speed of light, the expansion of the universe isn't governed by that speed, therefore... The expansion of the universe may achieve a speed that is faster than the speed of light, 
leaving the poor souls that may still live on Earth, or frankly anywhere in the universe, devoid of all starlight, perhaps the solar system oblivious to the existence of anything beyond itself, with skies devoid of all starlight, and in a universe that it is perceivably empty. Perhaps you didn't find that as unsettling as I did, but what a thing to think about. A sky that does not have stars and never will again. Let's hear some stories. Our first story comes to us from Michelle Ann King, who was born in East London and now lives in Essex. Her stories have appeared in over 70 different venues, including Interzone, Strange Horizons, and Black Static. Her favorite author is Stephen King, sadly no relation, and she also loves zombies, Las Vegas, and good scotch whiskey. Her first short story collection, Transient Tales, is available in ebook and paperback from Amazon and other online retailers. Listen with me to Michelle Ann King's Getting Shot in the Face Still Stings, first published in Black Treacle, June 7, 2013. Dom doesn't lose his temper as easily as his brother, so normally he's the one who deals with it when shit goes pear-shaped. But shit has been going pear-shaped a lot lately, and by the time Dom gets to the warehouse, Mark is already in full swing. Literally, he's gone after poor Jimmy with a nine-iron. Dom picks his way across the warehouse floor, cursing under his breath. His shoes are new, and it's a fuck of a thing to get blood out of tan leather. He puts both hands up, palms out. Mark? Take it easy. On the floor, Jimmy groans. He's pulled into a fetal position, so Dom can't tell the full extent of the damage, but his clothes are soaked in just about every bodily fluid there is. At first guess, Dom would say the kid's lost his teeth, his fingernails, his bollocks, and at least a couple of internal organs. Fuck, he says, and pinches his nostrils shut. Whole place is going to have to be hosed down. Disinfected. Mark grins. His eyes are bright, glittering in the dim light. He ignores Dom and addresses Jimmy. Do you know what the definition of insanity is, boy? Doing the same thing, but expecting it to turn out different. That was Einstein said that. Smart man. Not like you, eh? Because you should know, by now, what to expect when you fuck up, shouldn't you? You should know what happens. He swings a club at Jimmy's knee. It crunches and the kid howls. Mark, Dom says. Again, he's ignored. Another swing, and the other knee goes. Mark pushes his hair back, leaving a trail of red through the blonde, then brings the club down again, straight into the kid's gut. A spurt of blood comes out of his mouth, but no more sounds. Mark, Dom says, louder this time. For fuck's sake. Mark spins round, the club still in his hand. What? Have we got a problem here, Dominic? You got something you want to say to me? Some objection you want to make? He lets the club fly once more. Jimmy flips up and over and comes to rest on his back. His head cracks down on the concrete and one arm falls, loosely, over what's left of his face. Dom exhales slowly and looks down at the floor. Time for objections is past now. <sighs> no, boss, he says. Good! Mark's breathing hard and his knuckles are white. I came here to give this boy a chance to explain himself, but he decided he'd rather tell me a fairy story. 
It was a good one, though. You'd have liked it. Better than the three bears and the three pigs and the three fucking billy goats gruff. Magical powers, Dom. That's how he got robbed. Not because he's a fucking useless bastard, but because this woman's got magical powers. He spits into the puddle spreading under Jimmy's head. Her name's Eleanor, Dom says. Mark looks up at him. What? The woman he was talking about. Eleanor. I've been asking around what with all the shit that's been going on lately, and this is what I'm hearing. It wasn't just Jimmy, that's the thing. She turned Kelton over last night as well, took the lot, everything he had. Money, the gear, everything. Mark leans the club against the wall, then goes to the sink and washes his hands. You speak to Cal yet? Dom glances at the mess on the floor. Yeah, but you're not going to like it. Kelton Adams is a smackhead, but one of the functional ones. He runs his patch well, pays up on time, keeps his shit together. Went to university, still reads books. Talks a lot of bollocks, especially when he's high, but there's a decent brain under all the shit. Or so Don would have said, anyway. He rubs the back of his neck. He said she was a goddess. Immortal death, the goddess of time. I think that was the exact quote. Mark looks at his watch and lets out a hiss of annoyance. Glasses cracked. Are you serious? I'm just telling you what he said. He wasn't making much sense. No shit. How bad was he hurt? He wasn't. Not that I could see, anyway. So he just let her clean him out and walk away. Didn't pull up a fight. Dom shrugs. He said he did. He said he killed her, but it didn't make any difference. Don't ask me, Mark. I don't know what happened. There was blood all over the flat, but it wasn't his. There wasn't a mark on him. Cal can be handy with a knife when he needs to be, but if she'd lost that much blood, she'd be dead. So I don't know. Maybe she'd sacrificed a goat or something. Mark snorts. <laughs> right, yeah. A black mass. Voodoo. Maybe that's how she does it. He steps over the body on the floor. All right, let's get this sorted out. Find out where our little voodoo princess is hiding. I think it's time we started telling some of our own stories. Like the one about what happens when you pick the wrong people to fuck with. Dom makes some calls. Nine times out of ten, that's good enough in itself. If Mark's looking for you, you don't want to be found. Most people decide they've had a good enough run and quietly slip out the game. But this one? No. She doesn't disappear. She doesn't even keep out the way. She turns over their bookie, another couple of dealers, and one of the legit front shops. A florist? And who the fuck robs a florist, for fuck's sake? Then walks right into the warehouse while they're unpacking a shipment. Hi, she says, like it's some kind of makeup party. I'm Eleanor. She's tiny, five foot and a fag paper at most with short, dark blonde hair. Nicely curvy. Other circumstances, Dom might have shown some interest. Mark stares at her, like she's a cockroach that's dropped into his beer. Terry puts down the crate he was hauling, and puts his hand on his gun. The woman, Eleanor, just stands there. She's still smiling, like she's waiting to be asked if she wants a glass of wine or something. Dom's gun is in a shoulder holster, but it's easily visible. Mark's is tucked in his waistband. She acts like she hasn't noticed, and doesn't care. You must really have a death wish, Mark says, and she laughs like that's the funniest thing she's ever heard. Shut up, he says, but she just keeps laughing. All the guns are out now, including Dom's, but it doesn't seem to bother her. Maybe Mark's right, maybe this is what it's all been about, a death wish. Well, she wants to get killed, she came to the right place. 
After Jimmy, Dom had a nice slick metal floor put in, with a drain in the middle. There's plenty of plastic sheeting on the shelves and they own, in one form or another, all of the other units on the estate. No neighbours to worry about any strange noises. I heard you wanted to talk to me, she says. She's got a bit of an accent, but Dom can't place it. Vaguely American, vaguely Irish, vaguely something else. Yeah, Mark says. Something like that. He looks her up and down. If she's armed, it's well concealed. So you thought you'd drop in, eh? Come and have a nice chat. She grins. What can I say? I'm a thrill seeker. Sometimes you feel the need for an adrenaline rush, you know? Well, Mark says, I'm sure we can oblige. He raises the gun. How's that for starters? She looks at it critically and makes a so-so motion with her hand. Mark's face darkens and Dom knows this is going to get ugly. Hope you enjoyed yourself then, love, Mark says. Hope it was worth it, because now it's time to pay the bill. Wow, she says. Anyone ever tell you you sound just like the guy off that show about the... And then Mark shoots her in the face. The force of it knocks her off her feet and throws her back against the wall. She hangs there for a second, pinned against the spray of her own blood, then crumples. Fuck, Dom says. He didn't even get a chance to put down the plastic sheeting. Terry puts his hands on his hips and looks down at the body. Bit of a waste, wasn't it? She was a bad-looking lass. We still don't know how she was getting away with... It doesn't matter now, does it? Mark says. It was getting on my nerves, just listening to her. Well, don't just stand there. Get the... His voice fades out, becomes muffled. Dom's ears pop and his stomach clenches as if he's just gone down the drop on a roller coaster. He hates those fucking things. Hi, a voice says. I'm Eleanor. Dom swings round and nearly falls over, because his feet aren't where he left them. He's back standing by the shipping crate, instead of over by the door. Over by the body. Which is gone. Or, to be more precise, his back standing upright and smiling. What? he says. Mark is next to him again. Terry's back where he was, about to stack another crate on the pile. He drops it. What? Dom says again. The smell of smoke and blood is gone. Mark stares at his hand, which is empty. The gun is in his waistband. He snatches at it, then he drops it. (laughs) Careful there, cowboy, Eleanor says. You don't want that to go off when it's still stuffed in your pants, do you? Mark gets a proper grip on the gun, lifts it up and points it at her again. To his credit, it doesn't shake. Dom still feels wobbly as fuck, like he's just been through an earthquake or something. On the other side, Terry is smacking at his head like he's trying to shake something loose. Eleanor eyes the gun and lifts an eyebrow. <laughs> right, because that worked so well last time. What the fuck just happened? Mark says. You tried to kill me. It didn't work. At least, not for long. In the silence that follows, Don's mind flashes on an image of Kelton kneeling on the stained floorboards and rambling like a madman. Dom had thought he was praying at first. Maybe he had been. Immortal death, Dom says. Eleanor nods and gives him a pleased smile. Yes, exactly. Mark doesn't look pleased. Mark looks like he wants to rip her heart out and eat it. Hers or anyone else's come to that. Dom shifts backwards half a step. Exactly, Mark says. Exactly what the fuck is that supposed to mean? Immortal, Eleanor says. Definition, not moral. Undying, not subject to death or decay. Unkillable. Fuck you, Mark says, and empties the gun into her. He covers all the bases this time. Gut, chest, neck, head. 
After a couple of seconds, Terry joins in. The noise is very loud. Dom looks at the gun in his own hand and then puts it down on one of the crates. Mark gives him a look of fury and Terry one of contempt. What good do they think more bullets are going to do? Do they think Mark missed the first time? Terry carries on pulling the trigger, click click, long after the gun is empty. Then there's just smoke and echoes and fast panting breaths. What's left of Eleanor is splattered over half the warehouse. Right, Mark says, that's that sorted out. Dom, you... And then it happens again. The weird hollow zing in his ears, in his stomach, in his bones. He's back by the crates again, next to Mark, and his gun is in his holster. He whips his head around and yes, there she is. She doesn't speak this time. Mark roars with rage and grabs his gun. (laughs) Really? Eleanor says. You just want to keep going with this? Terry throws himself flat against the blockwork wall. His gaze roams over the floor, the walls, the crates. It's all clean. Dom can still see the red shapes himself, but only when he shuts his eyes. Mark keeps hold of his gun, but he doesn't fire. How are you doing this? he says. Remember that definition of a model? Mark shakes his head rapidly. It's not possible. It's not fucking possible. Oh, sure it is. Don't tell me you never heard of a deal with the devil. Terry moans and crosses himself. Mark throws him a look of disgust. I was after the grand prize, Eleanor says. A fountain of youth. To never grow old. Never die. Her voice is soft, almost nostalgic. Dom's mother used to talk like that, about fur coats and fancy cruises. Here Mark bought her plenty of both but it never took the longing out of her voice. I got my chance, Eleanor continues, but you know how it is. You're supposed to be very, very careful about what you wish for. Watch a small print, as it were. Because they'll fuck with you, demons, if they can. It's what happens, see? If you hang around long enough, you develop a taste for fucking with people. Because what else are you going to do with yourself, right? Terry's edging along the wall, his mouth hanging open and his eyes bulging. She looks at him and he breaks for the door. It's thick steel and fucking heavy, but he throws it open as if it's made of cardboard. It clangs shut after him. Fucker, Mark says. Eleanor smiles. I feel confident saying he'll be back soon enough. Now, where was I? Oh yes, getting fucked over. Because I specified living forever, but I didn't say anything about never dying. So the amusing loophole is I can still be killed. Just not, you know, for very long. What does that mean? Mark says. What does any of this mean? Eleanor spreads her hands. You saw what it means. I die, I rewind. We all rewind. She laughs. (laughs) It gives us a chance to reconsider the wisdom of our actions. Choose a different path. Fuck this, Mark says. This is absolute fucking bollocks. He fires again. Zing. That's three, Eleanor says. I know the whole demons, immortality, time loop thing is a Bit of a shock to the system, but come on! Try to get with the program. I might be technically immortal, but getting shot in the face still stings. Terry fumbles his crate again, then drops onto all fours and throws up. Mark pulls out his gun once more. This time, it shakes. Mark, Dom says, holding up his hand. Let's take a minute. Let's think about this. Mark glares at him, but he puts the piece away. Dom faces Eleanor. What do you want? Finally, she says. Progress. Well, I fancy being the bad guy for a while. Change of scenery, you know. So I'm going to take over. What? 
Your gang, your operation, whatever you call it. It's mine now. You work for me. Mark shakes his head. You taking the fucking piss? See, I love that. Such colourful turns of phrase you have here. Are you taking the fucking piss? It comes out strange in her weird accent. You'll have to teach me all of these. You're mental. You're absolutely fucking mental. She considers this. Eh, Very probably by now. But hey, a girl's got to have a hobby, right? Eternity is a long time, my friend. There's only so much Sudoku you can do. Mark lifts his chin. This is mine. This is all mine. I'm sure we can come to a mutually suitable arrangement. There will always be a place for highly motivated employees in my organisation. Employees? Do you think I'm going to work for you? Fuck that. Dom starts forward. Mark, wait. Don't. Zing. Fuck, Terry says. Fuck, 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 fuck. Elena smiles. Take four, she says brightly. Mark, enough with the gun, Dom says. He feels rough now, sick and exhausted like he's got a two-bottle hangover. No more. It's not doing any good to keep bringing us back to here. Smart boy, Elena says. There's always a place for the intelligent ones too. High spots of colour are burning in Mark's cheeks. His eyes look sunken and yellow. His fingers twitch, but he doesn't draw the gun. All right, all right. There's a pause. Dom and Terry both look at Eleanor. Don't look at her, Mark says. She's not in charge here. Terry starts edging towards the door. Fucking stay where you are, Mark says. Terry freezes. Time for negotiations, Eleanor says. Mark's head drops for a second. Then he lifts it again. I will not have this. I will not fucking have it. He cracks his knuckles. All right, we can't kill her. Okay. Doesn't mean we can't fuck her up. He nods towards one of the metal chairs. Tie her up there. Dom doesn't move. Nor does Terry. Did you hear me? I said, tie her up. Terry takes a step. One step. Then stops. Well, what's the fucking matter with you? Eleanor smiles. I think he's worried about what else I might be able to do. Isn't that right, sugar? Terry doesn't speak, but he swallows hard. After all, if this is real, and I think we're all finally in agreement on that point now, then what else might be? She runs her tongue along the edge of her teeth. Vampires? Werewolves? What if all those monsters under the bed are real? What if I can rip your throat out, break your neck with my bare hands? What if I can set you on fire with the power of my mind? Boil your brains in your skull with a single thought. Is that what's worrying you, Terry dear? She flings her hand out towards him, fingers stiff and splayed. Scotchio! Terry flinches, half ducks, and his feet tangle together. He goes down, hard. Elena throws back her head and laughs. <laughs> Damn, but that one never gets old. Mark grabs hold of Terry's arm and hauls him to his feet. You stupid fucker, he says. What's fucking wrong with you? This isn't Harry fucking Potter. Now get her! Eleanor grins and holds her arm out as if inviting a hug. Want to take the chance, Terry? Terry backs away. Dom stays where he is. Mark snarls at them. His lips draw back from his teeth and he looks more than half werewolf himself. He darts forward, seizes hold of Eleanor's arm and yanks her around and throws her into the chair. Dom holds his breath, and it looks like Terry's doing the same. Maybe Mark, too. Nothing happens. Eleanor shrugs. Ah, well, a lot of the time that works, but there's always the odd psychopath with no imagination.
grin of triumph spread across Mark's face. See? What did I tell you? He backhands her, putting his shoulders into it. The sound is meaty, solid. Her head rocks back and blood blooms at the corner of her mouth. She licks it clean. You learn to manage pain, she says. Over the years. It's like those guys you see on the telly sometimes. Yo guys, fuck ears. Stick needles in them, tie bricks to their cucks. Whatever. They don't blink an eyelid. Work at it long enough, you get control. Nerves, the breath, the heart. And I've had a very, very long time to work at it. She places a hand on her chest. There are techniques that let you take charge of the nervous system. You can hold your breath, say, or slow your heartbeat. Slow it down, or even stop it. Cause most people wouldn't want to go that far. But then, as you might have noticed, I'm not most people. She smiles, and her eyes roll back. Oh, fuck, Dom says. That means... Zing. Hi, guys, Eleanor says from behind him. Are we having fun yet? Terry goes down on his knees and begins to cry. She pulls a bag of peanuts out of her pocket, rips it open and throws one into her mouth. Want to test me? See how many times we can go round? I'm happy to play that game if you are. As I'm sure you can imagine, I have a great deal of patience. Boss, Terry says. Boss, please. Mark rounds on him. What? What are you saying to me? Give in? Let her take everything? You want to work for her, is that it? You'd rather work for her than me? You think she's going to look after you? She's a fucking monster. Eleanor munches on another handful of nuts. It's always interesting to see whose mind cracks first and how long it takes. Want to know what the world record is? Mark, Dom says. Mark, we've got to... He doesn't see the fist coming until it's too late to get out of the way. Pain flares in his jaw and his knees unlock. As he goes down, he sees Mark's hands, knuckles bleeding, close around Eleanor's throat. Zing. His vision starts to grey out, then he's back on his feet again. Terry's yelling, or maybe screaming would be a more accurate word. There are more gunshots. Zing. Everything hurts. He's seeing double. He throws up, can't clear his throat, feels like he's choking. Zing. Noise. Pain. Shouting. Eleanor, laughing. Zing. Okay, Eleanor says. Well, this is more like it. Dom swallows, spits. His throat feels raw. Terry is standing next to her, Mark's gun in his hand. He hands it to her. She gives him a wide, proud smile. Thank you, Terry. Mark's kneeling on the floor. Dom goes up behind him and pulls his arms behind his back, keeping him down. Eleanor has a knife. It has a black handle and a curved blade. It shines. She brings it to Mark's throat. Dom makes a sound. She stills and looks at him. Is there a problem, Dominic? Something you want to say? Dom looks down at his brother for a long time. Then he says, No, boss. Eleanor smiles and rests her hand on his shoulder. It's very warm. Good, she says, and they go back to work. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact... 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That was Michelle Ann King's Getting Shot in the Face still stings, as read by Matt Dovey. Matt Dovey is very tall and very English and most likely drinking a cup of tea right now. He has a scar on his arm that he can't remember getting, but a terrible darkness floods his mind when he considers it. He now lives in a quiet market town in rural England with his wife and three children, and despite being a writer, he still hasn't found the right words to properly express the delight and joy he finds in this wonderful arrangement. His surname arrives with Dopey, but any other similarities to the dwarf are purely coincidental. He is the Golden Pen winner for Writers of the Future, Volume 32, that's in 2016, and has fiction out and forthcoming all over the place. You can keep up with it at mattdovey.com or follow along on Facebook and Twitter both as at Matt Dovey Writer. Links will be in the show notes. Thank you, Matt. If you were to travel west from Ms. King's home neighborhood, you'd go far past the Algate Pump into the older parts of London and likely happen across Baker Street, home of our next author's most famous protagonist. Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle, born in 1859, was a British writer best known for his detective fiction featuring the character Sherlock Holmes. Originally a physician, in 1887 he published A Study in Scarlet, the first of four novels about Holmes and Dr. Watson. In addition, Doyle wrote over 50 short stories featuring the famous detective. The Sherlock Holmes stories are generally considered milestones in the field of crime fiction. Doyle is also known for writing the fictional adventures of Professor Challenger, and for propagating the mystery of the Mary Celeste. 
He was a prolific writer whose other works include fantasy and science fiction stories, plays, romances, poetry, nonfiction, and historical novels. He died in 1930. Doyle dismissed the Catholic religion of his parents, declaring himself an agnostic, but later became interested in the newest incarnation of the intersection between empirical science and the realm of the supernatural known as spiritualism. After what we would call a ghost hunt, left Doyle with the belief that he had experienced evidence of a psychic event, he became a sort of public spokesperson for spiritualism. In 1922, while in the United States, Doyle and his family arranged to meet a man who was well-known skeptic of all stripes of mediums after many had taken his money with promises of contacting his dead mother, but failed to produce any convincing results. That man was none other than Harry Houdini. Lady Doyle suggested that a seance would be held to contact the mother of Harry Houdini. Houdini left the seance skeptical, although the seance had created many pages of automatic writing claimed to be from the spirit of his deceased mother, he felt it odd that she would write in English, a language that she, in life, had never known. Furthermore, Houdini was skeptical that the spirit of his mother failed to mention that the day that they were speaking through the seance happened to be her birthday. Harry Houdini began a tradition of skepticism on the part of professional magical entertainers continued by the likes of James Randi. Houdini had an agreement with his wife, Bess, that they would have a secret code that should one of them die, they would serve as the supernatural agent of the other. Should a medium be able to contact the deceased, the secret code would be the evidence of existence after life. Harry passed in 1926. After a decade of trying, Bess had not heard those code words. She proclaimed that ten years was long enough to wait for any man. Although Doyle's support of spiritualism likely damaged his reputation, a few days before his death, in 1930, Conan Doyle wrote, The reader will judge that I have had many adventures. The greatest and most glorious of all await me now. The story you are about to hear originally was published in the Strand magazine in August of 1908. The month before began the Young Turk Revolution in the Ottoman Empire, which I would consider to be some of the early rumblings of World War I, and the month before that, the infamous Tunguska event in Russia, where 770 square miles of forest were leveled by an explosion of extraterrestrial origin, a detonation our planet wouldn't see again until August 1945, when the United States would use two atomic weapons on Japan at the close of our species' Second Great War. Listen with me to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Silver Mirror. January 3rd. This affair of White and Witherspoon's accounts proves to be a gigantic task. There are twenty thick ledgers to be examined and checked. Who would be a junior partner? However, it is the first big bit of business which has been left entirely in my hands. I must justify it. But it has to be finished so that the lawyers may have the result in time for the trial. 
Johnson said this morning that I should have to get the last figure out before the 20th of the month. Good Lord. Well, have at it, and if the human brain and nerve can stand the strain, I'll win out at the other side. It means office work from 10 to 5, and then a second sitting from about 8 to 1 in the morning. There's drama in an accountant's life. When I find myself in the still early hours, while all the world sleeps, hunting through column after column for those missing figures, which will turn a respected alderman into a felon, I understand that it is not such a prosaic profession after all. On Monday, I came on the first trace of defalcation. No heavy game hunter ever got a finer thrill when he first caught sight of the trail of his quarry. But I look at the twenty ledgers, and think of the jungle through which I have to follow him before I get my kill. Hard work, but rare sport too in a way. I saw the fat fellow once at a city dinner, his red face glowing above a white napkin. He looked at the little pale man at the end of the table. He would have been pale too if he could have seen the task that would be mine. January 6th. What perfect nonsense it is for doctors to prescribe rest when rest is out of the question. Asses. They might as well shout to a man who has a pack of wolves at his heels that what he wants is absolute quiet. My figures must be out by a certain date. Unless they are so, I shall lose the chance of my lifetime. So how on earth am I to rest? I'll take a week or so after the trial. Perhaps I myself was a fool to go to the doctor at all, but I get nervous and highly strung when I sit alone at my work at night. It's not a pain, only a sort of fullness of the head, with an occasional mist over the eyes. I thought perhaps some bromide, or chloral, or something of the kind might do me good. But stop work. It's absurd to ask such a thing. It's like a long-distance race. You feel queer at first, and your heart thumps and your lungs pant, but if you have only the pluck to keep on, you get your second wind. I'll stick to my work and wait for my second wind. If it never comes, all the same, I'll stick to my work. Two ledgers are done, and I am well on in the third. The rascal has covered his tracks well, but I pick them up for all that. January 9th. I had not meant to go to the doctor again, and yet I have had to. Straining my nerves, risking a complete breakdown, even endangering my sanity. That's a nice sentence to have fired off at one. Well, I'll stand the strain, and I'll take the risk, and so long as I can sit in my chair and move a pen, I'll follow the old sinner's slot. By the way, I may as well set down here the queer experience which drove me this second time to the doctor. I'll keep an exact record of my symptoms and sensations, because they're interesting in themselves. A curious psychophysiological study, says the doctor, and also because I am perfectly certain that when I am through with them, they will all seem blurred and unreal, like some queer dream betwixt sleeping and waking. So now, while they are fresh, I will just make a note of them, if only as a change of thought after the endless figures. There's an old silver-framed mirror in my room. It was given me by a friend who had a taste for antiquities, and he, as I happen to know, picked it up at a sale and had no notion where it came from. It's a large thing, three feet across and two feet high, and it leans at the back of a side table on my left as I write. The frame is flat, about three inches across, and very old, far too old for hallmarks or other methods of determining its age. The glass part projects with a beveled edge and has the magnificent reflecting power which is only, as it seems to me, to be found in very old mirrors. There's a feeling of perspective when you look into it, such as no modern glass can ever give. The mirror is so situated that as I sit at the table, I can usually see nothing in it but the reflection of the red window curtains. But a queer thing happened last night. I had been working for some hours, very much against the grain, with continual bouts of that mistiness of which I had complained. Again and again I had to stop and clear my eyes, 
Well, on one of these occasions, I chanced to look at the mirror. It had the oddest appearance. The red curtains, which should have been reflected in it, were no longer there. But the glass seemed to be clouded and steamy, not on the surface which glittered like steel, but deep down in the very grain of it. This opacity, when I stared hard at it, appeared to slowly rotate this way and that until it was a thick white cloud swirling in heavy wreaths. So real and solid was it, and so reasonable was I, that I remember turning with the idea that the curtains were on fire. But everything was deadly still in the room. No sound save the ticking of the clock. No movement save the slow gyration of that strange woolly cloud deep in the heart of the old mirror. Then, as I looked, the mist, or smoke, or cloud, or whatever one may call it, seemed to coalesce and solidify at two points quite close together, and I was aware, with a thrill of interest rather than of fear, that these were two eyes looking out into the room. A vague outline of a head I could see, a woman's by the hair, but this was very shadowy. Only the eyes were quite distinct. Such eyes, dark, luminous, filled with some passionate emotion, fury, or horror, I could not say which. Never have I seen eyes which were so full of intense, vivid life. They were not fixed upon me, but stared out into the room. Then, as I sat erect, passed my hand over my brow, and made a strong, conscious effort to pull myself together, the dim head faded into the general opacity. The mirror slowly cleared, and there were the red curtains once again. A skeptic would say, no doubt, that I had dropped asleep over my figures, and that my experience was a dream. As a matter of fact, I was never more vividly awake in my life. I was able to argue about it, even as I looked at it, and to tell myself that it was a subjective impression, a chimera of the nerves, begotten by worry and insomnia. But why this particular shape? And who is the woman? And what is the dreadful emotion which I read in those wonderful brown eyes? They come between me and my work. For the first time, I have done less than the daily tally which I had marked out. Perhaps that is why I have had no abnormal sensations tonight. Tomorrow, I must wake up, come what may. January 11th. All well, and good progress with my work. I wind the net, coil after coil, round that bulky body. But the last smile may remain with him, if my own nerves break over it. The mirror would seem to be a sort of barometer, which marks my brain pressure. Each night... I have observed that it had clouded before I reached the end of my task. Dr. Sinclair, who is, it seems, a bit of a psychologist, was so interested in my account that he came round this evening to have a look at the mirror. I had observed that something was scribbled in crabbed old characters upon the metalwork at the back. He examined this with a lens, but could make nothing of it. Sank X pal was his final reading of it, but that did not bring us any farther. He advised me to put it away into another room. But after all, whatever I may see in it is, by his own account, only a symptom. It is in the cause that the danger lies. The twenty ledgers, not the silver mirror, should be packed away if I could only do it. I'm at the eighth now, so I progress. January 13th. Perhaps it would have been wiser after all if I had packed away the mirror. I had an extraordinary experience with it last night, and yet... I find it so interesting, so fascinating, that even now I will keep it in its place. What on earth is the meaning of it all? I suppose it was about one in the morning, and I was closing my books, preparatory to staggering off to bed, when I saw her there, in front of me. 
The stage of mistiness and development must have passed unobserved, and there she was, in all her beauty and passion and distress, as clear-cut as if she were really in the flesh before me. The figure was small, but very distinct, so much so that every feature and every detail of dress are stamped in my memory. She is seated on the extreme left of the mirror. A sort of shadowy figure crouches down beside her. I can dimly discern that it is a man. And then, behind them is cloud, in which I see figures, figures which move. It is not a mere picture upon which I look. It is a scene in life, an actual episode. She crouches and quivers. The man beside her cowers down. The vague figures make abrupt movements and gestures. All my fears were swallowed up in my interest. It was maddening to see so much and not to see more. But I can at least describe the woman to the smallest point. She is very beautiful and quite young, not more than five and twenty, I should judge. Her hair is of a very rich brown, with a warm chestnut shade finding into gold at the edges. A little flat pointed cap comes to an angle in front and is made of lace edged with pearls. The forehead is high, too high perhaps for perfect beauty, but one would not have it otherwise, as it gives a touch of power and strength to what would otherwise be a softly feminine face. The brows are most delicately curved over heavy eyelids, and then come those wonderful eyes, so large, so dark, so full of overmastering emotion, of rage and horror, contending with a pride of self-control which holds her from sheer frenzy. The cheeks are pale, the lips white with agony, the chin and throat most exquisitely rounded. The figure sits and leans forward in the chair, straining and rigid, cataleptic with horror. The dress is black velvet. A jewel gleams like a flame in the breast, and a golden crucifix smolders in the shadow of a fold. This is the lady whose image still lives in the old silver mirror. What dire deed could it be which has left its impress there, so that now, in another age, if the spirit of a man be but worn down to it, he may be conscious of its presence? One other detail. On the left side of the skirt of the black dress was, as I thought at first, a shapeless bunch of white ribbon. Then, as I looked more intently, or as the vision defined itself more clearly, I perceived what it was. It was the hand of a man, clenched and knotted in agony, which held on with a convulsive grasp to the fold of the dress. The rest of the crouching figure was a mere vague outline, but that strenuous hand shone clear on the dark background with a sinister suggestion of tragedy in its frantic clutch. The man is frightened, horribly frightened. That I can clearly discern. What has terrified him so? Why does he grip the woman's dress? The answer lies among those moving figures in the background. They have brought danger both to him and to her. The interest of the thing fascinated me. I thought no more of its relation to my own nerves. I stared and stared as if in a theater, but I could get no farther. The mist thinned. There were tumultuous movements in which all the figures were vaguely concerned. Then the mirror was clear once more. The doctor says I must drop work for a day, and I can't afford to do so, for I have made good progress lately. It is quite evident that the visions depend entirely upon my own nervous state, for I sat in front of the mirror for an hour tonight, with no result whatever. My soothing day has chased them away. I wonder whether I shall ever penetrate what they all mean. I examined the mirror this evening under a good light, and besides the mysterious inscription sank ex pal, I was able to discern some signs of heraldic marks very faintly visible upon the silver. They must be very ancient, as they are almost obliterated. So far as I could make out, they were three spearheads, two above and one below. I will show them to the doctor when he calls tomorrow.
January 14th. Feel perfectly well again, and I intend that nothing else shall stop me until my task is finished. The doctor was shown the marks on the mirror and agreed that they were armorial bearings. He is deeply interested in all that I have told him and cross-questioned me closely on the details. It amuses me to notice how he is torn in two by conflicting desires. The one, that his patient should lose his symptoms. The other, that the medium, for so he regards me, should solve this mystery of the past. He advised continued rest, but did not oppose me too violently when I declared that such a thing was out of the question until the ten remaining ledgers have been checked. January 17th. For three nights, I have had no experiences. My day of rest has borne fruit. Only a quarter of my task is left, but I must make a forced march, for the lawyers are clamoring for their material. I will give them enough, and to spare. I have him fast on a hundred counts. When they realize what a slippery, cunning rascal he is, I should gain some credit from the case. False trading accounts, false balance sheets, dividends drawn from capital, losses written down as profits, suppression of working expenses, manipulation of petty cash, it is a fine record. January 18th. Headaches, nervous twitches, mistiness, fullness of the temples, all the premonitions of trouble. And the trouble came, sure enough. And yet my real sorrow is not so much that the vision should come as that it should cease before all is revealed. But I saw more tonight. The crouching man was as visible as the lady whose gown he clutched. He is a little swarthy fellow with a black-pointed beard. He has a loose gown of damask trimmed with fur. The prevailing tints of his dress are red. What a fright the fellow is in, to be sure. He cowers and shivers and glares back over his shoulder. There is a small knife in his other hand, but he is far too tremulous and cowed to use it. Dimly now I begin to see the figures in the background. Fierce faces, bearded and dark, shape themselves out of the mist. There is one terrible creature, a skeleton of a man, with hollow cheeks and eyes sunk in his head. He also has a knife in his hand. On the right of the woman stands a tall man, very young, with flaxen hair, his face sullen and dour. The beautiful woman looks up at him in appeal. So does the man on the ground. This youth seems to be the arbiter of their fate. The crouching man draws closer and hides himself in the woman's skirts. The tall youth bends and tries to drag her away from him. So much I saw last night, before the mirror cleared. Shall I never know what it leads to and whence it comes? It is not a mere imagination of that I am very sure. Somewhere, sometime, this scene has been acted, and this old mirror has reflected it. But when? Where? January 20th. My work draws to a close, and it is time. I feel a tenseness within my brain, a sense of intolerable strain, which warns me that something must give. I have worked myself to the limit. But tonight should be the last night. With a supreme effort, I should finish the final ledger and complete the case before I rise from my chair. I will do it. I will. February 7th. I did. My God, what an experience. I hardly know if I am strong enough yet to set it down. Let me explain, in the first instance, that I am writing this in Dr. Sinclair's private hospital some three weeks after the last entry in my diary. On the night of January 20th, my nervous system finally gave way, and I remembered nothing afterwards until I found myself three days ago in this home of rest, and I can rest with a good conscience. My work was done before I went under. My figures are in the solicitor's hands. The hunt is over. 
And now, I must describe that last night. I had sworn to finish my work, and so intently did I stick to it, though my head was bursting, that I would never look up until the last column had been added. And yet, it was fine self-restraint, for all the time I knew that wonderful things were happening in the mirror. Every nerve in my body told me so. If I looked up, there was an end of my work, so I did not look up until all was finished. Then, when at last, with throbbing temples, I threw down my pen and raised my eyes, what a sight was there! The mirror, in its silver frame, was like a stage, brilliantly lit, in which a drama was in progress. There was no mist now. The oppression of my nerves had wrought this amazing clarity. Every feature, every movement was as clear-cut as in life. To think that I, a tired accountant, the most prosaic of mankind, with the account books of a swindling bankrupt before me, should be chosen of all the human race to look upon such a scene. It was the same scene, and the same figures, but the drama had advanced a stage. The tall young man was holding the woman in his arms. She strained away from him, and looked up at him with loathing in her face. They had torn the crouching man away from his hold upon the skirt of her dress. A dozen of them were around him. Savage men, bearded men, they hacked at him with knives. All seemed to strike together. Their arms rose and fell. The blood did not flow from him. It squirted. His red dress was dabbled in it. He threw himself this way and that, purple upon crimson like an overripe plum. Still they hacked, and still the jets shot from him. It was horrible, horrible. They dragged him, kicking to the door. The woman looked over her shoulder at him, and her mouth gaped. I heard nothing, but I knew that she was screaming. And then, whether it was this nerve-wracking vision before me, or whether, my task finished, all the overwork of the past weeks came in one crushing weight upon me, the room danced around me, the floor seemed to sink away beneath my feet, and I remembered no more. In the early morning, my landlady found me stretched senseless before the silver mirror, but I knew nothing myself, until three days ago I awoke in the deep peace of the doctor's nursing home. February 9th only today have I told Dr. Sinclair my full experience. He had not allowed me to speak of such matters before. He listened with an absorbed interest. You don't identify this with any well-known scene in history, he asked, with suspicion in his eyes. I assured him that I knew nothing of history. Have you no idea whence that mirror came and to whom it once belonged, he continued. Have you? I asked, for he spoke with meaning. It's incredible, said he, and yet how else can one explain it? The scenes which you described before suggested it, but now it has gone beyond all range of coincidence. I will bring you some notes in the evening. Later. He has just left me. Let me set down his words as closely as I can recall them. He began by laying several musty volumes upon my bed. These you can consult at your leisure, said he. I have some notes here which you can confirm. There is not a doubt that what you have seen is the murder of Rizzio by the Scottish nobles in the presence of Mary, which occurred in March 1566. Your description of the woman is accurate. The high forehead and heavy eyelids combined with great beauty could hardly apply to two women. The tall young man was her husband, Darnley. Rizzio, says the Chronicle, was dressed in a loose dressing gown of furred damask with hose of russet velvet. With one hand he clutched Mary's gown, with the other he held a dagger— your fierce, hollow-eyed man was Ruthven, who was new-risen from a bed of sickness. Every detail is exact. But why to me? I asked, in bewilderment. Why, of all the human race, to me? Because you were in the fit mental state to receive the impression. Because you chanced to own the mirror, which gave the impression. The mirror? 
You think, then, that it was Mary's mirror that had stood in the room where the deed was done. I am convinced that it was Mary's mirror. She had been Queen of France. Her personal property would be stamped with the royal arms. What you took to be three spearheads were really the lilies of France. And the inscription? Sank ex pal. You can expand it into Sancte Crucis Palatium. Someone has made a note upon the mirror as to whence it came. It was the Palace of the Holy Cross. Holyrood, I cried. Exactly. Your mirror came from Holyrood. You have had one very singular experience and have escaped. I trust that you will never put yourself into the way of having such another. That was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's The Silver Mirror, as read by Josh Roseman. Josh Roseman, not the trombonist, the other one, lives in Georgia and makes internets for a living. He has been published in, among others, Asimov's Escape Pod and Evil Girlfriend Media, and has work forthcoming, or already released, in 2016 from Abstract Jam, Stupefying Stories, and The Overcast. In 2015, he released his first collection, The Clockwork Russian and Other Stories. When not writing, he mostly complains that he's not writing. Thank you, Josh. That will be our show for the evening, Children of the Night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show was produced by our editors, Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website design by Josh Leitze, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.